The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I should turn with me in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. Tonight we conclude our series in the book of Jonah. Last week we looked at chapter 3 where we saw that the Ninevites respond to the preaching of Jonah with heart-cutting repentance. In fact, we might say Jonah's revival is every preacher's dream. Hostile enemies. A simple message of turn or burn, and thousands of people weeping with repentance. The people of Nineveh heard the voice of God in Jonah's voice and were convicted of their sins. Yet tonight we come to the end of the story and learn that Jonah is not happy. Jonah has a bone to pick with God. Many, many centuries later, Jesus will confront the Jonas of his own day. In relating this story, he says to his audience, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah indeed points to one greater than himself, one whose grace is sufficient, and compassion is great for those who are lost, and even sufficient for a reluctant and resentful prophet. Please follow as I read Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It will be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. 
though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the holy and inspired word of God. Father, we do ask for your illumination. Please send your spirit upon us to grant us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine recently informed a group of us that his, he- his house had been infested with bed bugs. These very stubborn creatures find their way into homes, hide in the bedroom. They come out at night and bite people in their sleep to feed on their blood. And unfortunately, oftentimes the bites don't show the sign for weeks to come, so these bugs have time to breed and to multiply. Now, bed bugs are not invisible, but they are very hard to see. And as any of you have known from the reports we've seen on the news lately, they are very difficult to eradicate and sometimes require many hundreds of dollars worth of professional extermination. Well, like a case of head lice. Bed bugs are embarrassing. People are ashamed to let others know that they have them. And so they keep it secret to themselves. Well, in a similar way, heart issues of pride and self-righteousness are embarrassing. They're secret sins. They're difficult to detect unless you have keen spiritual discernment. And these sins are not easily to eradicate. They require serious treatment. The book of Jonah, in many ways, is about the pride and the self-righteousness of the people of God embodied in this infamous prophet. God used Jonah not only to reach a lost people, but to teach the people of God Something about grace. We know from 2 Kings 14.25 that Jonah had actively promoted Jeroboam II's expansionist military policy in contrast to his contemporary prophets Amos and Hosea who were quick to criticize the corruption of the royal administration. It's ironic that God would use a hyper-nationalist to preach to Israel's enemies. Jonah, no doubt, was stunned for God to command him with this call. You see, there's no reason to send the Assyrians a warning unless there was a prospect that judgment could be averted. One of the lessons we learn from the life and story of Jonah is that racial pride and cultural narrowness cannot coexist with the gospel of God's grace. And it is natural to see our own culture and our own class distinctives as superior to other people's. I'd like us to approach tonight's text with the three questions we find in our passage. Jonah has a question for God. 
God, in turn, has a question for Jonah. And then we discover that God has a question for each one of us. Now, it's interesting as you study the book of Jonah that in the first three chapters, the only people who are asking any questions are the pagans. We find the captain and the sailors of the ship ask no less than eight fundamental questions about who Jonah is and who God is and so forth. It ends in chapter 3 with the pagan king of Nineveh asking a profound question. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. These pagan men, groping about in the darkness, inquiring about the nature of God, arouse the sleeping prophet. These men are open to the message of God, where Jonah is resistant to it. These pagans are even even take more regard for human life and eternal destinies than Jonah does. The sailors labor with all their might to spare Jonah's life so as not to throw him overboard until they have to. And the king of Nineveh spares no effort to save his people from certain judgment and destruction. Well, chapter 4, as we come to chapter 4, we find a very engaging dialogue between Jonah and the Lord. And these three questions emerge. Why is Jonah so angry? Why is God not angry? And thirdly, how are we to respond? Well, verse 1 of chapter 4 opens with the startling double emphasis on just how angry and displeased Jonah is against God. Now, anger towards God is not an uncommon human emotion. People get angry at God for their suffering when they experience disappointment. If you lose a job, a spouse, or a child, in your anguish, you will be very tempted to be angry at God. Christians, even followers of Christ, can feel like God is not being faithful to fulfill his promises. You may have labored long and hard in your life and ministry, expecting God to come through for you. He owes you. Believers can be angry when our ministry results are not what we had hoped for. But who gets angry when they find ministry success? Well, Jonah does. We learn in verse 2 why it is that Jonah ran away from the Lord in the first place. He says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah says, I knew it. You're a big softy. I can't count on you to judge the wicked. Perhaps you had an occasion with your spouse where one or the other of you became angry with the other for not being hard enough on the children in discipline. Or perhaps you can remember a time growing up when the older siblings held disdain towards the parents for being too soft on the wayward younger children. 
human nature has an uncommon lust to see that other people get what they justly deserve. Our compassion tanks run out easily. Thankfully, God's does not. As Jonah testifies, God is consistently gracious and compassionate. He practically quotes the self-revelation of God given to Moses when he is hidden in the cleft of the rock. Many of us here have a very sensitive conscience to the anger of God. Perhaps you had a legalistic upbringing, have suffered many bouts with regret, shame, and guilt. Let me remind you tonight that God's mercy, that his love triumphs over his wrath and judgment. Our God is a father who welcomes us with open arms, who receives back wayward children, who cast themselves upon his mercy. One redeeming quality of Jonah we do find in this chapter is that he is praying. He's engaging with God, although it is with smoldering anger. And sadly, his anger is so great that he wishes he were dead. This is not an uncommon wish in the scriptures. We see in the life of Moses an occasion where he preferred death, when he was so overwhelmed by ministry burdens and weighty demands of a people who threatened mutiny and their discontent. We know that Elijah had a great bout with depression just after triumphing over the prophets of Baal, considering that he were better off dead. Job welcomed death as an alternative to his miserable condition. Any one of us who have experienced depression yourself or a loved one can sympathize with the flawed human reason that sees death as an attractive alternative to going on in suffering. These three men of old found renewed hope and the gracious presence of God. But this is the very thing that Jonah rejects, God's grace and presence for him. Jonah's pride was so great that he neither wanted grace for his enemies or for himself. In his nihilism, his self-centeredness, he preferred that everybody were dead in his condition. Jonah is no better than a terrorist, determined to bring the whole ship down, including himself. We wonder if there was anyone who wanted to die as badly as the prophet Jonah. Well, there is one. Jonah wanted to die in self-pity. Separate from God, angry at God's pity on the pagans. Jesus wanted to die as a sacrifice for a people separated from God. Jonah would rather die than pray for the Ninevites. Jesus would rather die than his people suffer eternal wrath. Jonah had to be dragged across the Mediterranean Sea by a great fish to preach to the Ninevites. Jesus crossed heaven and earth to be born in a humble state and gladly fulfill his father's mission. 
Aren't you thankful that we Ninevites have a prophet who is not bitter or disgruntled, but graciously came to preach and sacrifice himself for our salvation? Next, I'd like us to consider God's question to Jonah. I have to confess that when my children are sulking, I am not always as gentle and as gracious as I ought to be. But notice how gently God treats a very sulky prophet, the Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord of righteousness, approaches the prophet and very benignly asks him, have you any right to be angry? The way in which God approaches scared and angry people, stuck in pits of self-righteousness, is a marvel to behold. The Lord did not storm into the garden with both barrels blazing, but calmly walked after Adam and Eve to ask them what they had done. God, the questioner, does not interrogate like a police captain, becomes like a concerned father, more interested in the well-being of his son than the wreck that he has just caused. Jesus demonstrates this same compassionate questioning as he draws out the heart of a Pharisee named Simon. Simon had been judging Jesus from the very moment Jesus came into his house for dinner to Simon's horror a woman of disrepute comes to offer gifts of tears and perfume at Jesus' feet rather than be rude or alienate his host with accusations. Jesus tells him a parable of two debtors and then feeds him a question that helps illuminate what his heart needs to learn about grace. Jesus embodies the way Yahweh draws out the heart of a Pharisee. Well, not only does the Lord draw Jonah out with a question, he pursues him with a compassionate deed. The text tells us that Jonah stalked out of the city of Nineveh, set up a makeshift shelter on the east side, and waited for the fireworks display. Well, it seems his shelter was inadequate, so the Lord sought to provide for Jonah's discomfort, sending a plant to grow up and provide him adequate shelter from the heat. The word here in verse 6, the word discomfort, describe Jonah's condition, is the same word used to describe the wickedness of the Ninevites in chapter 1. It's the same word to describe the destruction that would have awaited the city. In chapter 3, God not only protected Jonah with a plant, he preserved the Ninevite people by his protective grace. We saw in verse 1 that Jonah was exceedingly angry that God had relented from his judgment. But now in verse 6, he's exceedingly glad about a plant. The ESV commentators suggest that this is the castor oil plant 
How appropriate for a sulking prophet. Jonah was very fond of this plant. Jonah cherished this plant. But like all idols, it had to be killed. So the next night, God sent a worm to eat away at the plant so that it withered and died, leaving Jonah exposed to the sun and the east wind, seething in his loss of shade and companionship. It would seem that Jonah sought fellowship with a plant rather than God, who sought to escape rather than stay with a repentant people providing them much-needed pastoral counsel. God's actions expose the pettiness of Jonah. He cares more for a plant and his own sunburn than the burning of other people who will suffer eternally. God's response to Jonah is also instructive to our hearts. Are there people that you'd rather see burn than repent? Perhaps terrorists attacking our people. Or perhaps people in our own culture who are pushing some kind of agenda that's radically opposed to what you think is good for our nation. You know, it's not until we engage in ministry with sin-sick people do we realize how much our hearts are filled with filth and stones. The great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. You see, the great danger of spiritual blindness confronts the people of God of every age. When we care too much for our own comforts, then the plight of those in darkness who face an eternal destiny of punishment. Are we concerned more about our homes, our travel plans, than those who face a judgment without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Sinclair Ferguson says that Jonah was a nationalist of the most dangerous kind. What Jonah wanted was a God made in his own narrow-hearted image, a God with his own prejudices who would only come into fellowship with sinners under certain restrictive conditions. Jonah realized that conforming himself to the image of God would be costly. For Jonah, it would require making himself of no reputation in order for the Ninevites to hear the message of grace. How could he go back to face his own people, informing them that in response to his preaching, Nineveh was now saved. The reputation of the God of grace in Nineveh necessitated the loss of the reputation of Jonah in Israel. Was Jonah willing to die to self? Was he willing to become Christ-like? That is what it takes to become a man of no reputation for redemption 
to come at great cost. Well, as we come to the end of chapter 4, we see that God does get the last word. In a final appeal, he challenges Jonah to reconsider his entrenched position. Once again, God gently confronts Jonah's self-concern for the vine. The word pity is used in contrast the way Jonah has pity on the plant. That God argues from the lesser to the greater. How much more ought he to pity? 120,000 people who will face certain judgment without his message of salvation. And that is where the story concludes. It ends without resolution. We are not told how Jonah responds to the questioning of God. How might we find out? Well, there is a way. By asking another question. Who wrote the book of Jonah? It's a story that ends with this gaping question unanswered. It's like the prodigal son story of Jesus, how it ends with the father pleading with the elder brother to have compassion upon the younger son who had been lost and now is found, who had been dead and is now alive. The stories are so similar. It's almost as if Jesus took his cue from Jonah to press his burden upon the Pharisees whom he was telling his story to. He confronts the pride and the self-righteousness of the Israelites who looked upon the Gentiles with disdain, laboring to soften their hearts with God's mercy upon the lost. Jonah was an Old Testament Pharisee. He needed radical heart change. The prodigal son story ends without resolution. As a challenge to all generations of believers to check their own heart response to a gospel of grace for all sinners. Likewise, Jonah ends without resolution, to challenge us to stop coveting God's grace, to stop hoarding God's compassion, to realize that it's only by grace that any of us enter the kingdom of God. So who wrote the book of Jonah? Well, it's obvious. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah or at least gave a thorough interview to its author. And how did Jonah respond to God's question? Well, that should be obvious as well. Jonah finally did come to his senses again. He finally repented again. Jonah embraced God's grace for sinners again. The only reason we have this story is that Jonah rediscovered the message of grace. You see, no one writes a story that paints himself in a bad light. 
that makes him look like a ridiculous, stubborn fool unless he has been so struck with a powerful message that he realizes this is a message too great to go untold for the instruction of others. Only a man who has found a new identity, secure in a relationship with the living God, can present himself in all of his folly for the benefit of future generations. We indeed benefit from the folly of Jonah. We benefit from the candid folly that we see in the lives of the disciples, where Scripture reports their shortcomings without mercy. Peter's thrice denial of his Lord. Thomas's doubting how many times Jesus has to rebuke his disciples for being slow to understand these candid exposures into human weakness give a strong basis to validate and appreciate the truthfulness of Scripture. In the stories of these men, we see as in mirrors of ourselves, our pride, our anger, our running from God, our fear of witness, our half-hearted repentance. Jonah is instructive for the church today, challenging us to put away self-protection, to open wide our hearts to the lost multitudes, even those who threaten us with persecution accusation, political manipulation. What else are we to expect from a people alienated from God and cut off from his redeeming love? The story of Jonah echoes to us a question that God also asked of the prophet Isaiah. Whom shall I send and who will go for us. Isaiah was willing. Jonah was not. But both were inadequate. We needed a prophet greater than Isaiah or Jonah. In reference to Jonah spending three days in the belly of a well, Jesus predicted his own death and declared that one greater than Jonah was in their midst He came to minister to hostile enemies, to suffer harm at their hands. Jonah merely preached. Jesus preached and died. Both of these prophets slept on a boat in the midst of a great storm. The storm was miraculously calmed, and all on the ships were saved. Jonah was thrown into the sea to calm the storm. Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm to bring peace between God and men. Jesus sank in the storm of terrors so that you and I need not fear the storms of life or the judgment to come. It is shameful to admit that you've had head lice or bed bugs the knowledge of this benefits others for whom they can find the cure. The secret sins of pride and self-righteousness are unpleasant to discuss. 
But for those of us who have been delivered by grace have much to offer. Those who are blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. Jonah is Christ-like because he learned to see things from God's perspective and appreciate his compassion on himself, the chief of sinners. May we learn like Jonah, the ways of him who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Let us pray. Great and awesome God, we who covet your grace, we who beg for your compassion, humbly confess how much we need your mercy, how much this lost and despairing world needs the message of your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. May it use us and guide us and work through us that we may be vessels and agents of your reconciling grace to those who are lost and needy. Be glorified in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.